0: Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. The Signpost Webinar Series is brought to you in association with the National Rural Network, Food Drink Ireland and Dairy Sustainability Ireland. To date, much of our discussion here on the Signpost Series has focused on measures to reduce gaseous emissions from agriculture, So today we're going to take a look at a mitigation option that is arguably has huge potential to sequester carbon, and that is forestry. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Kevin Black, who is Director of Forest Environmental Research Services. Good morning to you, Kevin. And we're also joined by uh, Tom Houlihan, who is Forestry Specialist with Chagas. Good morning to you, Tom. If you could introduce yourselves for us and uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you do uh, with your company.
1: Well, uh, thank you, Mark. Um, I've been involved in uh, carbon research and forestry for over 20 years now. And I've been, I set up FERS about 16 years ago. And we specialize in environmental aspects of forestry and particularly carbon. So I do work on the greenhouse gas inventory, uh, policy support to the department and the European Union. I've worked on carbon tax schemes for forestry, for national systems, carbon trading systems, and things like that. And thanks again for inviting me to
0: speak today. Well, it's, good to, it's good to have you joining us uh, today, Kevin. And Tom, uh, could you tell us a bit about the, the work that you're doing in Chagisk? Uh, you're, you're based in Kerry this morning. I
2: work as a forestry specialist with Chagisk. Um, so my work involves linking with uh, research and advisory, and, and I suppose being a bridge between the two, um, Definitely working with and supporting my TAGAS forestry advisory colleagues and also wider colleagues across the TAGAS organization. And we would have also many external linkages and collaborations, um, which are, are very valuable. And also, part of my role is to promote forestry um, in appropriate circumstances.
0: And today, you're going to be talking to us about a new tool that's available for the sector. Could you give us an overview of that?
2: Yeah, it's, it, um, it, it was launched by uh, Minister of State, Pippa Hackett, in, in January. So it's it's the, it's called the Forest Carbon Tool. And um, again, I'll explain a bit on the, on the background in, in the presentation, but it's a, like we've collaborated with FERS and, and it's developed with support from the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine to give um, indicative carbon figures for different forest um, scenarios, particularly if people are looking at establishing new forest
0: and this is going to become really important particularly in the context of potential increases in carbon the price of carbon and uh, uh sequestration uh, that farmers or, or forestry owners could could use that carbon uh, uh or that there would be a value attached to it
2: yes i think it's something that that certainly will be will be looked at and it has been raised um as a possible option um looking at can there be a value in the carbon? But again, it's a policy decision that will need to be looked at, but certainly maybe it's timely to consider it um, as an option.
0: Okay, we'll hand over to you so, Tom.
2: I'll give a brief introduction and look at forest mitigation pathways. Then I'll be handing over to Kevin, who will look at um, a number of areas around the forest carbon tool. Firstly, the afforestation scenarios, which are important up to mid-century, and specifically with the tool concepts, the assumptions, the background system boundaries and methods, um, validation, which is important, and also some uh, results. I will come back in then, and as I said, um, look at um, using the forest carbon tool and a couple of take home points, but that's the outline Um, to to set the scene. And we are aware from many informative presentations in this series um, of major climate challenges and the future reforestation has a highly significant role to play and a further important message is that climate change is not the only reason for sustainably expanding our forest resource and in, in, in so doing delivering benefits so i think there's a clear and ongoing need for a balanced approach between sustainable wood production and realizing the social and environmental uh, roles that are underpinned by sustainable management in new and existing forests. And I think another important point is that all forest types, be they con- conifer, broadleaf, and mixed forests, have an important role to play in contributing to the range of services that I outlined. Um, while th- there are increased ambitions to plant more native uh, forests and diverse species, productive conifers are are and they will be required to meet a strong underlying demand for new homes and for other important future uses and I think a recent UK timber trade federation webinar has predicted high timber demands in 2021 with predicted demand outstripping supply for some years to come so achieving this balance is very important and looking at forest level uh, carbon balances are based on net carbon emissions or removals from five forest carbon pools and these pools are simply reservoirs of carbon and we get fluxes which are carbon transfers from one pool to another so looking at these pools we've got the above ground biomass pool below ground biomass we've got the litter pool which is on the we call the forest floor soil carbon pool and deadwood which is an important component in the process as well. And carbon dioxide is taken out of the atmosphere and and is sequestered, in other words, it's taken up by the trees during photosynthesis with a corresponding release of oxygen. And the rate of uptake is affected by many factors, as we might see. We also get long-term allocation of carbon into above and below ground forest biomass, and we get turnover of biomass into the soils and dead organic matter. So a lot of interchanges there. We can get a loss of carbon as a result of respiration by trees both above and below ground and decomposition or oxidation of soil organic matter. So there are complex processes. And if carbon uptake exceeds loss, the forest is a sink. And conversely, if the loss exceeds uptake, the forest could be a source. So the final output is the sum of these stock changes. And in the previous slide, we looked at the sequestration in the growing forest and the carbon pools involved. The long-term storage of carbon in harvested wood products represents a well-recognized and a very important pool outside of the forest. And we use the abbreviation HWP for harvested wood products And optimizing long-lived products is important. Substitution of fossil fuels with wood energy from sustainably managed forests is a further carbon mitigation opportunity and there are good examples around the country of significant fossil fuel displacement. So these are the three pathways included in the forest carbon tool which we'll be looking at and Just to mention a further area receiving much international attention, but not in the current system boundary, is the substitution of wood products for energy intensive materials, such as concrete and steel. And perhaps the ultimate example is called Mie Starnet in Norway at over 85 meters, the world's largest uh, or the tallest timber building and a key factor is the use of engineered wood, such as glue laminated timber, and um, between 11 and 13,000 trees sourced from local Norwegian forests supplied most of the wood for this project. The total carbon dioxide equivalent avoided by using wood products over other materials in the building is more than 2,400 metric tons of carbon, so very significant. And just to I suppose mentioned the, the forest carbon tool, um, the focus of this webinar. It was launched in January, as I said, and it's available on the forestry section of the TAGAS website. It was developed in conjunction with the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, and with FERS for a number of important reasons, particularly to raise awareness of the importance of climate mitigation through afforestation provide up-to-date information on carbon sequestration trends, allow comparisons of the relative merits of varying afforestation options from a carbon sequestration point of view. And I suppose just to to say that this tool is for the purposes that I have outlined in the slide and not intended to provide absolute data on any particular forest carbon valuations or trading platforms at this stage. I'll stop sharing now and hand you over to Kevin, um, who will take up from here.
1: I'm just going to go through the concepts and the methodologies behind the Forest Carbon Tool and uh, just talk about some of the, the, how we could interpret the results uh, and looking at the different mitigation options and pathways. Um, so, I mean, just to set the scene, um, we, we speak about the importance of reforestation, but it's by far the largest land-based mitigation option in Ireland particularly and um, it's made contributed to reaching our 26 million ton target under the EU effort sharing agreement 2021 to to 2030. Now uh, uh, this is highly dependent on a number of factors but the afforestation rate is a large driver on the extent of this sink Um, and you can see in this in the in the graphic shown below there on the, the effect of the projected forest sink going up to 2050 based on different afforestation rates. Um, And as you can see, um, it's very important to have forestation rates exceeding the national target of 8,000 hectares to get a substantial forest sink. And At rates below 3,500 hectares per year, we're looking at nearly becoming a carbon neutral system in the future. So it's very important to sustain this, but there are other ways to do this, is to enhance your mitigation through your forestation using different options, such as species, the productivity of species, the wood flow of carbon into the harvest the wood product pool, as Tom outlined, avoiding deforestation, and of course, sustainable forest management. So um, that's just my way of introduction, but now I'm gonna go into some of the concepts, and it's very important to remember that um, afforestation is a once-off mitigation uh, option okay and it's not permanent unless the forests are managed sustainably so once you are forest you're nearly locked in to continue foresting uh, uh, managing the forest in a sustainable way into the future otherwise the carbon you're saving this once-off step is lost okay and um, when we start looking at comparison of carbon sequestration options they vary considerably over time and space. So, uh, we need to compare like with like, and this is a major challenge. But what we've done in the tool, we've used two concepts, which we talk about the cap value and the mean annual sequestration value. And just to demonstrate this, what we have in the two graphics is the cumulative carbon removals by the forest, the harvested wood product, the dead organic matter pool, which is the biomass litter and soils, and the product substitution into energy over time, over two rotations. And what you can see, the the foresting slowly increases the blue blue, um, bars, increase over time until you start harvesting. And then you lose carbon at that point. Some of the carbon is transferred to the other pools. And after the first rotation, you get this big loss in carbon, which builds up again. So um, essentially, that once-off carbon removal is what we call the cap. And it's the maximum potential of carbon that can be removed in the long term. That generally stays at steady state after two or three rotations. And we use this to make a comparison across different species. Um, just to add that the steady state um, in harvested wood product doesn't really occur because uh, carbon keeps on getting transferred to harvested wood product in subsequent rotations, but the increase is very, very small. So the steady state assumption is quite safe to use. So we use this cap value. Uh, to look at the once of long-term sequestration value, you could look at it as the long-term potential. And then we look at the mean annual sequestration rate over time. And th- this gives you an idea on the, the speed at which a forest takes up carbon. Okay. So uh, generally speaking, what happens is as the rotation length of a forest increases, the cap value is, is higher. But generally speaking, the average annual sequestration rate is lower. So In the two examples here, we have a highly productive conifer. Well, a productive conifer site, Sitka spruce, and you can see it's got a lower uh, cap value, but it's got a high average um, annual sequestration rate. In contrast, if you look at oak, it's much slower, but it has a higher cap value over time because of the longer rotations. Um, The other very important concept to remember is the trade-off between how you store the carbon and the pathway that you choose for the mitigation options the the, the two the, the complex diagrams just showing the the transfers of carbons between the forest and the harvested wood product pools under two scenarios on the left hand side we have a scenario where you retain most of your carbon in the forest system and and have limited harvest in that case what happens is more carbon accumulates in the deadwood and the soil pools and you get a higher stock and a longer retention in the forest system. Um, in the other situation where you have maybe perhaps a highly productive forest with a high inflow of carbon into the harvested wood product, you get a diversion into the harvested wood product, a higher decomposition loss from the forest itself and uh, so what that results is you have a low carbon stock in the forest but continued sequestration in the harvested wood product pool. Um, so th- the important thing is that the forest is more resilient at storing carbon and other pathways. But in, 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 in order to get a sustainable um, capture of carbon, harvest wood product also has a very important role. And you'll see the trade-offs when you start looking at some of the results. And just some quick assumptions, and I'm gonna go through the side uh, the, this quite quickly, but the assumptions are based on fixed management assumptions. So we have chosen a range of species, hill classes, and management regimes. And the results only apply to these assumptions. If you change it, the results, um, uh, y- you can't use other assumptions and apply the results to that. That's a very important thing to do, to remember. There are some categories that we've done some work on that are still subject to high uncertainty, particularly the agroforestry and native woodland scheme. We lack the models, the, the, the really robust models to do this. Um, you must also remember, and as I mentioned earlier, afforestation is assumed to be permanent under this scenario. So the, no deforestation is assumed to happen and the same management is assumed to happen in perpetuity. We also assume that there's no leakage effect and in the carbon world, the, the, the leakage is the displacement or intensification of activities leading to emissions elsewhere. For example, if you have livestock on your land and you replace reforested and you it. Um, and uh, livestock management is intensified somewhere else, leading to emissions. We do not take this into account. So, uh, there are a range of uh, species in the and uh, GPC categories that we look at, but uh, Tom will go into this a little bit further in his demonstration. Um, another thing to consider is the, uh, the system boundaries, hence, what we include and what we exclude. And as Tom mentioned, we include the forest carbon pools and mineral and organic soils. Harvested wood product pool, uh, fossil fuel replacement from thinnings, and livestock emissions in the case of agroforestry. Uh, what we exclude from the system is fossil fuel emissions from forestry operations, emissions from fires, and nitrous oxide emissions from mineralization of carbon loss from soils, and uh, uh, application of urea or nitrogenous compounds Uh, these emissions are quite small so it's quite safe to assume that they're negligible there's also additional uh, fossil fuel emissions from the milling sector during processing and um, we exclude product substitution for energy intensive materials but this is very important as uh, tom mentioned earlier we've also uh, assumed that the biomass and soil stock changes under uh, Agroforestry under the non-woody component of agroforestry, are zero. Um, this is based on uh, some assumptions from the literature. Um, just quickly to go into the models, and I know this is complex, but I mean I'm just trying to give you an idea on how we do we 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 do these estimates, and we use a, a modelling system called the the carbon budget model. It's quite widely used across the world, and also in voluntary carbon trading systems we use it in the national greenhouse gas inventory so we're using a, high, a well-recognized system that has been peer-reviewed and validated and the model is based on uh, timber volume increment curves from the uh, industry standard uh, uh, systems like growfor or bespoke developed curves that we've developed from research and the national forest inventory or other modeling systems these growth models are then imported into the into the a CBM model where it converts growth into biomass components and it then plugs it into this carbon transfer model based on the the turnover, mortality of trees and disturbances such as harvesting and thinning. And uh, uh, this simulates the uptake and release of carbon from the forest system. We then, of course, also transfer the harvest from forest into the harvested wood product model and the bioenergy models that we use and I'll touch on the validation of the models a little bit later. Um, as I mentioned, the, the, the methods are fully in line with the IPCC guidelines and it's currently used the greenhouse gas inventory. Um, and they're subject to peer review and, and validation and they're based on, on a research. COFID has been really good at this since 2002. They've nearly continuously funded carbon-based forest research and we have a depth of knowledge to, to build on here. There's some assumptions around the harvested wood product timber flows. We assume that the timber flows are the same as they are now. Obviously, these may change in the future. But generally speaking, saw log is uh, allocated to sawn wood. It's a semi finished product. About 43% of saw log goes into the, the finished sawn wood product. Whereas pulp and pellet, pellet goes to wood based products, about 49% of that does. And then, of course, the harvested wood products also decompose over time. As I mentioned, with regards to fossil fuel replacement, we assume that about 15% of the first and second thinnings go for uh, from from spruce go for uh, bioenergy. And uh, all broadleaf thinnings besides saw log are assumed to be used for bioenergy. And obviously, gpc 12 which are, is the forest for fiber uh, ground category, is used for energy. We, we use a substitution avoidance factor of 0.26 tons for every tonne of carbon displacing a fossil fuel, assuming that we, we're displacing oil. Um, just quickly, something about uh, to look at the, re, um, the validation of the results. So what, we, we, what the graph shows is the outputs from CBM in terms of the net ecosystem exchange. So that's the net carbon balance per year for different forest types, whether it be Sitka spruce at different ages or ash, At different ages, and we compare that to a method called eddy covariance, which is the only available real time measurement of CO2 from the forest. This is a meteorological measurement, and we've had measurements in Ireland since 2001. We set this up in 2001. So we have ways of validating the model. This is very important. And as you can see, there's a very good agreement between the model influences, uh, the model carbon fluxes from CBM, and the eddy covariance. Uh, estimates. So that gives us some confidence on the models. Another way to look at the validation is to look at the biomass of different forest types, and this is also from the COFID research program, and we compare it to the um, the CBM outputs, and you see a very good agreement there. Um, Another validation we we looked at, and some of you might be familiar with the Woodland Carbon Code, which have these curves for this similar purpose. And uh, it agrees very well for both conifers and broadleaves. So that gives us a lot of confidence that the models we developed are quite robust. Just very quickly, um, looking at, at the results, Tom will take this through you. But as you can see, uh, the, the graph shows uh, the, the two values that I speak about, the mean sequestration rate, the annual sequestration rate over time in the different pathways, either being the forest carbon pool, the harvested wood product pool, or the bioenergy pool. Um, and then the black line represents the cap value. And if you remember, that is the maximum potential. And you can see there are some trade-offs here. You can get forests that sequester very high values of um, carbon. The annual value is very high. If you look at GPC-12, which is the forest for fiber scenario, it's got a very high value, but a very low cap value. So there's a bit of a trade-off. Alternatively, when you look at your very slow Uh, sequestering forests like oak. It's got a low mean value, but a very high uh, cap value. So these are the trade-offs that that we're looking at. So generally speaking, the average value will vary from one to nine tonnes of CO2 per hectare. And the cap values could vary anything from 150 to 550 tonnes of carbon as a once-off long-term removal. Um, So in summary, um, under the scenarios that we looked at, which represent most of the forest types that we're currently planting, the mean sequestration ranges from one to nine tons of carbon per hectare. And um, the, uh, the, this, this varies depending on species. Also, um, the cap will also vary depending on species. And a species with a higher cap value will generally have a, high, a, a, a longer carbon capture in the long term. Uh, examples of these would be the native woodland scheme or the r- long rotation slow growing broadleaf crops. Alternatively, in pathways where you have highly productive conifer species and a high carbon flow into the harvest of wood product, you have a higher annual sequestration rate per a low cap value. Um, also, uh, what we find, if you look at the thin versus no-thin scenario, you, surprisingly you see that no-thin scenario appears to Provide a higher sequestration potential than thin crops. This is because of the low retention of carbon in the harvested wood product pool that I mentioned a little bit earlier, and carbon's more resilient in the forest compared to to, uh, to uh, harvested wood products. However, I should point out again, this trend might tra- change the minute you start bringing in product substitution because of the higher sequestration potential of high uh, uh, high value timber products in. Into building material might, have, might change this trend. Um, and I just want to highlight again on what Tom mentioned about the fact that forests have many ecosystem services and carbon is only a small component of the overall picture. Um, also, to remember that afforestation offers a once off removal. Although there is a, a continued decline from the harvest of wood product, could we need to consider other forest policies to increase mitigation potential, such as forest management and product substitution? So um, that's all from me, and I'll hand over to uh, Tom again just to go through the tool.
2: Okay, um, just just to f- finish off with um, a look at the the use of the tool, um, and as, as I said, uh, we, we, you can access the tool through the um the web address slash forest carbon tool So it brings the user directly to um, the tool landing page.
0: And oh, we can not see your screen there in case you're sc- sharing any screens or, or your video. Just, oh, uh, sorry. No. We have shared the link to the, the forest carbon tool through the chat function there. Oh, okay. So is,
2: is that visible now?
0: Yes, we can see that now, yeah.
2: Okay, yeah, sorry about that now. Uh, so the tool is available on all common web platforms, including the Internet Explorer, Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, as well as on mobile uh, devices. Um, so it can be, you, you get into the tool by by um, clicking as indicated. Um, the first page within the tool outlines some of the main assumptions as well as the background methodologies that Kevin has mentioned. And it's important I suppose, to be familiar with these and also the capabilities of the tool, as well as the scope for further improvements and enhancements. Um, under the methodologies and system boundaries section, there's a link, to a document providing more detailed description for people who who wish to read through on the working of the tool. Um, And this assumptions page also contains the two tables that Kevin referred to which people can um, review and looking at the grant and premium categories and the selected species groups that are uh, covered in the tool. So once all the assumptions are read, the user can accept um, these assumptions and move on to the calculator page. And accepting the accepting assumptions brings the user to, to this interface. Um, so the, they can select either the current grant and premium categories or otherwise use more general species groups by clicking on the appropriate circle uh, as indicated here. And here we have selected grant and premium categories. And um, this brings uh, up two drop downs. The first is the actual range of grant and premium categories that can be currently selected. And work is ongoing to derive data for GPCs nine and 10, which will hopefully be uploaded in the next iteration of the tool. And is just for, uh, subject to further analysis and validation, which is important. In this example, um, we sh- shown in blue here, we we've selected the GPC eight, which consists of high yield class Alder birch category. The second selection required is the soil type from another drop-down menu on this page. And here we are selecting a mineral soil in blue. Um, having made these two selections, the GPC and the soil type, the next step is to hit the calculate button, which produces um, the carbon sequestration outputs. Um, so for this GPC-8 option, um, we get estimated carbon uh, dioxide equivalent removals relating to the forest site, the harvest of wood products and the fossil fuel substitution with wood energy, as indicated in red. And these combined values provide the mean sequestration rate of 3.46 tonnes of CO2 equivalents per hectare per year over the two rotations um, of 75 years each. This mean figure is indicated as the, in the red line on the graph, and the graph also shows that the annual sequestration rates can vary over time during each rotation. And there are also emissions relating to forest thinning and final harvest before the forest carbon levels build up again um, in the second rotation. And the cap value, as uh, Kevin referred to in this case, is the average cumulative sequestration is 471 tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalents per hectare, um, so it represents an indication of the sequestration potential. If we compare the scenario for GPC8 with a, a different grant and premium category, GPC3, which contains an assumed 70% conifer such as spruce, it uh, in- includes 15% broadleaves and 15% of the overall area is set aside also for biodiversity enhancement which includes open areas environmental setbacks hedgerows and retained habitat so we see in this gpc tree scenario that the mean sequestration rate is higher uh, significantly higher at 6.82 tons of co2 per hectare per year while the cap value is lower, but still quite significant at 357. Just one other option that I I, I would uh, mention uh, given the time constraints, GPC 11, which incorporates the agroforestry option, which can include what we call silvopastoral systems. These combine widely spaced trees with the capacity for livestock raising in between. And in this agroforestry scenario, the appropriate soil type is mineral, and the user has two additional drop-down selections. One for livestock type, and here you can see the options available in the tool, which include sheep, young dairy cattle, dry stock age one to two years, and also a poultry option. And I have also indicated here the assumed emissions per head for each livestock type. And in parentheses the range of units that may be selected for each livestock type and the the, the obvious uh, references are are, are also there so in this example we select agroforestry with sheep um, at a stocking of 12 head per hectare as the option and again we can hit the calculate button and in this scenario the mean annual sequestration by virtue of the forestry component, is 2.86. So as the sum of the three uh, elements here, um, the agricultural emissions from the sheep is ca- is calculated at just over two tons of CO2 equivalent, which is deducted um, from the forest sequestration, and giving a net mean sequestration of 0.83 tons of CO2 equivalents per hectare per year. The cap value in this scenario is also lower than in in the previous two examples at 187 tons of CO2, again, due to agricultural emissions. So in the absence of livestock, it will be up at around 340. And finally, just to note that the, the outputs from all scenarios that are run using either GPCs or species groups from the table two can be converted to a PDF using this button and either downloaded or printed off. So just to finish, um, we've discussed a range of areas this morning and I will leave you with three final take home messages. Firstly, that new planting can have a very significant role in addressing our need for climate change mitigation and moving towards achieving our challenging planting target is needed if we wish to achieve a strong carbon sink. A second point is that a range of forest types and approaches are necessary and can deliver a different range of ecosystem services, which will be dependent on owner's objectives as well as the forest type and management. So we encourage the use of the forest carbon tool as a support mechanism to inform, to partly inform at least decision-making. And finally, I would reiterate that the future potential of substituting energy intensive materials for example concrete and steel with sustainable wood products and the benefits of building this into the future of our ambitions is very important so I'll stop sharing that and thank you for your attention.
0: Thank you Tom and thank you uh, Kevin for a really excellent uh, presentation and uh you, you you took a deep dive there in a few a few of the areas um and i suppose we have a couple of questions coming in from our audience just an, uh, around the whole difference between cap and sequestration rate and maybe just could we just synopsize that for ourselves before we go any further just just to have a clear in our minds the difference there and and also is, is it a standard uh, ro- amount of rotations that are, are used when calculating the cap? So maybe, uh, Kevin, you'd like to take that one.
1: Yeah, so uh, uh, as, as I mentioned, um, the, the cap is calculated when the forest reaches steady state. And generally speaking, after two or three rotations, you've hit the steady state, which means the forest won't sequester anymore after that. So the the cap value is calculated as the cumulative average. So the cumulative sum of the removals over the period is the cap value. And that represents the long-term storage potential, okay? So uh, the other calculation we use is the average annual sequestration over the period. Um, So that really gives you the idea of the speed at which the system accumulates carbon versus the maximum potential the system has to accumulate carbon and the use of these values are very important because you can't compare oranges and apples so you have to have some normalized value that you can and we use these two metrics to do that
0: so uh, i suppose one thing that has become very clear is that it's, it's, it's not simple and it's not straightforward either in terms of i suppose particularly around that question around deciduous versus uh coniferous forestry um would you care to comment on that I, I know that in europe uh generally i think there's a higher carb uh, tree coverage in, in other european countries compared to ireland um is there a a a, a plan or a, a roadmap that you think we should be pursuing to get that right balance between deciduous and uh for um coniferous forestry uh,
2: if, if i can go ahead go ahead kevin uh it, I suppose it's, it's, as I said earlier on, it's uh, achieving a balance. And what I said is we we, we need all these systems in place. Um, We we know that we'd say native woodland components and broadleaf components give us quite high biodiversity values and they can give us a long-term hardwood resource. But also, as I pointed out, um, we're looking at um, a potential need um, in future years of up to 35,000 housing units per annum. To build up to that, so I think we, we need our systems, and I don't see a need or I see a need for a strong need for both. Um, that that would, that would be my uh, strong view on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kevin,
1: yeah, perhaps I could just add to it. I'm, I mean, the old termage that foresters always talk about is the right species for the right site, um, and and I mean that should be the overriding principle. This is only a decision tool, it's, it's to assist you in making decisions. And I would agree 100% with, with, with Tom, a good mixture is what's required uh, to fulfill all the needs and services that forestry provides.
2: And in, in many cases, Mark, um, you know, um, in, engaging with forest owners, as my colleagues and myself would have been doing, we see that um, if you go around the country, that quite a lot of owners have actually mixed forests, or they have an area of conifer, um, which will give the economic return but it, a lot of them have a, a big interest also in putting in some native woodland and having a nice mix even within an individual forest as well as at a broader level
0: uh, kevin from your perspective um you've you're aware of the the, the the level of planting that's happening in the country at the moment uh, is, is is generally low uh how can this be improved these rates in your view
1: uh, well um <laughs> I suppose you could get incentives through policy, um, and, and I do notice that there's a tremendous interest from the public themselves now are prepared to invest in forestry just for the carbon capture, the biodiversity value. So um, the, the policy incentives are quite hard to drive, because as you know, they compete with other policies, um, particularly around land use, so it gets quite complicated. And uh, also given that all the environmental constraints, it's very hard to hit these targets. So there are perhaps incentives that can be done, additional financial incentives perhaps for carbon could incentivize this and other policy measures. Um uh, I know under the EU uh, strategy, climate change strategy, they have a pillar now with what they call for uh, carbon farming. and. Uh, some kind of monetary system payment for this so th- that's a good incentive um, but it's very difficult to do against all the other land uses options that farmers have.
2: Right. If I could just add to that uh, Mark as well, um, I know um, a lot of viewers would be aware like there is a licensing challenge there at the moment. So part uh, part of the, of the needs and the urgent need is, is to have a continuous flow of licensing whether it is afforestation, roading, or, or the felling for to sustain our, our our industry, so that that is really critical, and it is being addressed by Project Woodland. So the expectation would be that um, that, that there will be a, a, a quick alleviation, while still, um, I suppose, ensuring due process. And I, I also think that it's very important to to support um, and maybe reengage landowners. And just to show them that you know forestry can be a very complementary land use and um, Togus um, and other stakeholders would have very good case studies of owners who have uh, come through the farm forestry enterprise and uh, have had very good outcomes and finally just I would say integration of uh, forestry with, with future agricultural schemes is very important for example in agri-environmental schemes where maybe an owner could have an option of um, transferring an, an area or, or a parcel of land over to forestry without any penalty. So integration, I think, is, is, is feedback we're getting as well that's needed.
0: Okay, thank, thank you both for that. Uh, Pat, are you there? Um, we have a lot of questions coming through here on the uh, the, uh, the Q&A system. Um, Apologies as- if I
3: left off my, my <laughs> camera. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of questions, a, a good number of questions relating to uh, peatland, uh, the, uh, both in terms of of I think uh, current forestry on peatland and the net, net level of the I suppose the balance of of carbon uh, from sequestration and potential losses there, and also I suppose the potential for uh, a forestry solution on. Uh, peatland that is being re- reha- uh, rehabilit- rehabilitated at the moment.
1: Um, uh, Tom, I don't know if you want to go first, but um, we, we, uh, maybe I'll just answer the question with regards to carbon balance of peatlands. And I think everybody knows that um, drainage of a peatland results in emissions. And um, my personal view is that pristine peatland should be left alone and not forested. Now there are organic soils in the kind of continuum that are partially degraded or drained through the older ulterior scheme, which are now degrading peatlands, which will still be a net emission. So although forests um, uh, uh, an emission uh, without forests. Now, when you have forest to drain organic soil, what happens, there's initially large emissions, but the total system starts being a sink after 10 to 15 years and remains so as long as you sustainably manage the forest until rotation and then the process starts again so it, it's not it's not the perfect carbon sequestration scenario but it is one that still offers sink potential that's very important um, but in saying that i think in my personal view it should be limited to very shallow organic soils and um, let's learn from the lessons from the past and leave pristine peats as they are that's my personal view
2: yeah, maybe just if I can, I suppose, add to that, and again, I, maybe reflecting feedback that we get from the sector, um, and again, I, th- I think there, there, there's very genuine and strong views that, okay, we can ex- exclude deep peats and pristine peats, um, sensitive sites, and those um, designated areas, um, annex type habitats, and I think if you look at the land types for afforestation, there's a different, uh, I think, 11 different types, um, land types uh, described in that as unsuitable for forestry, but we do get feedback that there are sites that can be productive for tree growth and maybe merit consideration. And also feedback, we'll say on GPC1 type sites where pioneer birch maybe is, is naturally con, con, re- recolonizing and maybe with suitable incentive would, could be considered, But I think this is something that uh, will also be on the agenda for project woodland and is an important um, item. And I suppose it, it's all tied into our, our land use strategy in the future, but it needs to be considered. Okay.
3: I think that's as clear an answer as I've ever got to that, 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 that issue. So thanks for that. Uh, questions there in relation to native woodland scheme and its inclusion in the, the forestry tool or in the, the, the carbon tool, forest carbon tool.
2: Yeah, uh, what I would say is is that there, there's a couple of, of options w- within the tool. Again, we're looking at just further data analysis and what, as Kevin said earlier, we, we try and validate as far as possible. So we would hope and the idea with this tool is that if there is new or, or further information available, that we can incorporate it and we'd be hopefully working with Kevin on that. And so maybe with, in the next iteration we, we, we would have the the GPC nine and 10 categories, and maybe other, let's also remember it goes up to year class, we will say if you're looking at, at spruce, it goes up to year class 24, and the forestry uh, colleagues out there will tell you that we can get year classes up to over 30. And in the same way with broadleaves, it goes up to year class six at the moment for for the slower growing broadleaves, they can go higher and also for the faster growing. So, As more information comes available, we'd hope to have further enhancements built into the tool. Yeah, and in relation to further enhancements,
3: there are a couple of queries there around the, I suppose, the the certification of the tool to international carbon uh, accreditation standards. And then on top of that, then the possible uh, movement or the, the possible role of the tool in carbon accounting, when, when there may be credits given or, or income to be earned in relation to to uh, carbon.
1: Yeah, um, I'll, I'll take. I'm sure Tom will also respond. Um, it's important to know that the tool only provides priori estimates of the carbon captured by forests. So. the the, the science is quite robust and in fact the same approach is used for for other international carbon trading schemes that actually use cbm so it's not the science that's the limiting factor the the issue is the setup of of the standard for carbon trading there are a lot of other issues to consider and i I think i'm just going to highlight three for you the first one is materiality and this is what they, they refer to as the realness of your capture so as a as a project it's registered for carbon trading, you have to show that you actually take in that amount. So every ten or five years, you have to actively go to your forest, measure it and prove that you've taken that that amount. So that has to be included in the system. The second one is what they call offset total title. And that's essentially undisputed proof of ownership. Uh, That's another thing that has to be proved. And there are a whole lot of other issues like permanence has to be assured. So there's a buffer that needs to be applied. You have to show that there's no leakage, which I referred to earlier. So that relates to displacement of activities that leads to intensification or emissions somewhere else. You have to look at baselines. So the science is there. In in summary, the science is there, but the system design and how it applies to the legal framework in Ireland needs to be developed to facilitate this. Um, As I mentioned earlier, this is high on the agenda for the European Commission under the climate change strategy, they see the role of the voluntary carbon market very important to meeting climate change ambitions.
0: Kevin, could I just to follow on from that? I mean, what sort of infrastructure do you think is needed to to realise that particularly, you know, what are what are the critical elements that are needed to be put in place to to realise this potential for carbon farming?
1: So um, the, 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 the first thing to do is to set up the standard and technically that's possible and it's technically possible to look at other standards and develop the same. So you, you, what you need is you need a governing body that's um, preferably a non-for-profit or there's no vested interest in it and you need to link the carbon to a registry that makes it foolproof. And so it's like any system. If I'm selling you an engineering product and I'm saying it's a high spec, it's got an ISO spec to it. So essentially what you have to do is you have to put an ISO stamp on it that makes it real and verifiable. Otherwise you're selling hot air. (laughs) So you can't just say my forest sequesters X amount of carbon and try and ask for money. You have to prove that it does that and it doesn't... um, have any negative impl- implications like environmental implications. This is why these, these, the licensing is so difficult. So because we have the licensing system that looks after the legal framework, that's all done for us. So we could piggyback on this and set the standard on the back of that. So I, I think it's doable. It's just a case of setting it up and, of course, uh, addressing this issue of offset title, um, that has to be addressed.
2: And maybe just just to add there, Mark, that uh, um, w- w- within Toggesque, we're involved in, it's a forestry extension network, and we've had contact with um, Scottish Forestry, who administer the, uh, the Woodland Carbon Code, and they they started out in 2007 in the development of the Woodland Carbon Code, and they've, it took a number of years to put in place, and like, they're, I think they're looking at, at further additional options now, Um so Maybe it's timely to look at it, but there are, I suppose, there are issues to be addressed as well. And one of those would be proof of additionality. So it's, it's beyond the normal um, catering for like the, any forest planted is assumed to be permanent. If is there a liability for reversals? And then, as Kevin said, there's monitoring and there's verification validation. So there's a number of steps that need to be carefully looked at and considered um, in this process. There's
1: Uh, just come back there uh, on the additionality. I'm sorry, uh, just to make it clear what it means. It it means you you cannot claim that you capture carbon by doing nothing. So you have to do something additional to what you would have done anyway, and and you have to prove that as a project. Otherwise, uh, you're not getting real removal of CO2 from the atmosphere.
0: Could you give an example of that, Kevin?
1: So, um, for example, if you have an existing forest that you planted five years ago, you can't claim that as a, a carbon removal because it's been done already. So um, th- that's a very simple example. There are a whole lot of tools that you use, for example, financial additionality is one of them, or if there's any barriers. So for example, a native woodlands are a perfect example. The, the financial return from timber flow from native woodlands would be quite small, but a carbon trading system would provide that financial additionality to make the project happen. And this is where carbon trading systems really come into play. Uh, uh, you know, you, you can't have, even with the grant aid, it's very hard to convince somebody to do a native woodland if they're in it for money. So if you could plug ecosystem services into this, not just carbon, biodiversity, all the other elements into it and monetize it, that's a way of providing incentive for kind of back to nature forestry. So the, the additionality is is around those, the, those concepts.
3: The question there, Mark, about uh, the integration of um, management practices on an ongoing basis to get to it so that if you have optimal management, you get extra, if, if, if there is extra uh, carbon sequestered, that you, you get credit for it. Is there a prospect of that being incorporated into a tool? And I suppose the second part of the question are what are those practices in,
2: in very briefly? <laughs> mm-hmm. I think Tom, if you could. Yeah. Okay. Um. Like in terms of, of management, I suppose increasing forest growth and limiting disturbances, because as as we've said, disturbances will will um will cause carbon em- emission. Um, rapid establishment of trees and management. Um, harvesting trees at at the appropriate times and their appropriate a- ages. There would be one of the, um, I suppose some of them are from my perspective and. Again, as I said, if we, if we can incorporate further um, enhancements into the tool, we will certainly look at that. And maybe if, if people want to e- email um, with, with suggestions or thoughts on today's process, like we'll try and take things on board. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, maybe I could just add to that. Um, I mean, with regards to management, we've done a lot of work on this. I mean, there's a whole range of options. Some of the options we—it's very difficult to estimate, like continuous cover. Everybody moots continuous cover, but in actual fact, there's no hard scientific evidence to support that it's better because we don't understand it, and it's not commonly practiced. But and also the idea that if you just leave the forest alone is a good option—it's not because you—you've got this issue of forest getting older extreme events, insect outbreaks, fires, wind throw. So it's a medium between the two. It's it's a mixture, but low intensity, most probably, and a mixture or choosing the right species in the right type, having your high sequestration rates, high timber volumes. So it's a good mix again. I mean, that's a whole different topic, but I think it's something that maybe should be looked outside the context of this tool because it's very dynamic and it's very hard to give guidelines on it that could be used as this uh, very simple guidelines. It's quite a complex topic.
0: We have a, a maybe we just wrap things up on a final. It's a, probably a big question, but uh, the question I have for you, Kevin is, is uh, the lack of a national land policy affecting uh, the likely afforestation? Uh, some farmland's not suitable to plant owing to fragmentation and so forth. Um, so in effect, the, the government not not running this, but third parties. So I suppose the question really is, yeah, I mean, do we need a, a larger policy around this to uh, to to try and drive like what we're saying? Even within forestry, you have climate change objectives, but you also mm-hmm. have biodiversity objectives, which uh, could uh, you know have very different uh, management requirements.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I see this, and I'd say some of the policies the, the the EU is pushing that already, as I mentioned, with the climate change strategy. So th- that will start changing things. But around the land use policy, I would agree. I, I would agree that's what's required. But I would hesitate to n- only do a carbon one. And and again, I think it has to be look at all options. The most one of the most interesting projects I ever worked on was a recent work for Board Namona when they looked at their 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 lands, and it was the first time we had this template of land to do a mix mixture of things on either it's re-wetting uh, carbon energy you know it's a mixture of everything and to do and to plan it at the landscape level this is never done you know we have these policies that relate to a farm level policy we need landscape level policies um i, I would agree fully i think that is what's required
0: okay uh, we're we're right out of time um thank you both uh, so much for your time and, and effort in your presentations uh, to, to Tom and to Kevin Pat thanks for, for helping with questions also thanks to our uh, production team Andy Boland and Yvonne Maher and a reminder that you can uh, see a recording of today's uh, webinar and all previous webinars on the Chagas YouTube channel You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagas Signpost Series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.